Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. This episode of Unspooled is brought to you by Podswag. Podswag is a website that offers you merch from all of your favorite podcasts like WTF, Comedy Bang Bang, and of course now Unspooled. Unspooled finally has something in Podswag that Paul and I helped design ourselves with the awesomest help from Scott Lava and our producer Josh. What we did is we made a poster of all of the AFI Top 100. It's illustrated. We came with little symbols to represent each film. Like one of my personal favorites is we have a sweaty t-shirt for uh, Marlon Brando and On the Waterfront. And yeah, it's like a great, awesome, beautiful checklist. And if you want, you can get it in a special Christmas bundle with your very own Zokihedron. It is black and it is witchy and it will control your life. So if you are shopping this season for a podcast-loving friend, you can look up the show that they love and get them something they will be super stoked to own. Or you can even just grab a gift card for anybody who like loves a bunch of shows and you don't know which one weird thing they want to own to make a, the sound of audio waves in their hands feel real. So shop the Unspooled collection today at podswag.com slash unspooled or shop all of the collections. Either way, go to podswag.com slash unspooled. Check it all out and happy holidays, you guys. The year is 1976 and a side of beef doesn't know what hit it. The movie? Rocky. everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson, and Paul Shear will be in in a little bit when we get started on our conversation. But I just wanted to say hi and talk about last week's episode of A Clockwork Orange, which I loved, I loved, I loved, I loved all the reactions that we got from this, including one that made my heart get a little bit warm with uh, absolute shock, surprise, and, and burning awe. That is that uh, David Dukkowicz, he's at DavidD227, he said that his parents went to go see Clockwork Orange on a date before they got married and that they've been married 45 years. And he doesn't quite know what this means, but I think that a couple that sees Clockwork Orange together and talks about it afterwards and keeps talking for 45 years, I love the sound of that. And related to the debate that always continues to rage about this film, or maybe calmly talk, which is also lovely, um, Melanie Manning, she's at Eileen R. Girl. She wrote that she finds the music in Clockwork Orange not comical, but just it makes the violence that you see as the light music plays seem even more terrifying and depraved by the juxtaposition. And I thought that was interesting because I see it the other way, but I can absolutely see her point of view, too. 
And I love that we can talk about it. Angie, too, who is at ND2 Last Jedi, she writes that the Clockwork Orange conversation reminded her of this quote from Neil Gaiman, which I will read. It says, quote, There's nothing wrong with the death penalty if you can trust the legal system implicitly, and no one but a moron would ever trust the legal system. Which I like. That's a very clockwork, orangean, catch-22-ian, looping-on-itself, very true quote. Um, And I will close out with a little comment from Mr. Mixelplick, who writes, Yep. I think a valid point. He says, I get that A Clockwork Orange is produced by an American studio and has an American director, but should Clockwork Orange really be considered an American film at all when it was filmed in England with an all-English cast and is about England? And yeah, this is a debate that I think is also worth having because I'm an absolute hypocrite. And like, I feel like six months ago, I'd be like, yeah. And now that the favorite like was on the AFI 2018 list, um, I don't, if you guys haven't seen the favorite yet, it's the new film by Yorgos Lanthimos. And it is also set in England, also with a largely English class and also one of my favorite films of the year. Um, the fact that it made the AFI top list this year, I'm like, yes, even the director is Greek and it's hard to make the case that it's American. Although Emma Stone is in it. Anyway, what I'm saying is, Go watch The Favorite. And my God, if we lived in a world where The Favorite was on the AFI list in the year 2040, that is the kind of sci-fi that uh, I would thumbstamp. Okay, so we're about to get into this week's film. But before we do, last week, Paul was bursting with energy and he could not help doing, I would say, like a mini, loving, wonderful teaser slash preview slash rant of what we're about to talk about. Uh, on an episode of How Did This Get Made, he just went on a 16-minute beautiful, loving, tirade is not the right word, it's more gentle than that, about the entire Rocky franchise, which I just think you absolutely have to listen to. So I'm like whispering that before I let him come in. And now, let's dive into this week's movie. Let's dive into Rocky and let's bring Paul Scheer into the studio. It's 1976. The average income is about $16,000. Apple Computer Company is formed with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. NASA unveils its first space shuttle, the Enterprise. Lennon and McCartney almost reunite on Saturday Night Live. Frontier Airlines hires the first female pilot. And Black History Month begins. All this in the same year that Sylvester Stallone introduces us to an iconic character named Rocky Balboa. I'm sorry, did you include on that list that Lennon and McCarthy almost reunite but don't? Yeah, that's one of the most <laughs> one of the most famous stories of SNL lore that Lauren Michaels like <laughs> offers them like uh, $3,000 to to perform on Saturday Night Live and they were both watching SNL and they're like we should go we should go down and collect the $3,000. There's like a bit and they almost got there, but it was this famous story that they might have reunited on SNL. They considered it to the point where it became anecdotal that they almost went down to SNL to do that and how great wow. that would have been. You know, you've really made it in life when something you almost do becomes something important. <laughs> you, but you know what? Maybe that is a perfect intro into Rocky, the story of a boxer who almost wins a fight but doesn't, and that's okay. And continues to be as relevant as the Beatles to this very day. Amy! Who's in Rocky? Well, Rocky is written by and stars Sylvester Stallone. There's Talia Shire as his pet store girlfriend, Adrian. Burt Young as Polly, her brother. Carl Weathers as Apollo Creed, his rival fighter. And Burgess Meredith as Mickey, the trainer. And it is directed by John G. Avildsen. And he directed The Karate Kid, too, which is essentially Rocky for karate. <laughs> so he's got a thing. Yeah. Do you think that we even need to tell people what Rocky is about? 
you know, let's remind them because I think Rocky can blur. I mean, this is a movie with so many triumphant looking moments that I think it's easy to forget that the movie itself leading up to the big fight is pretty depressing. So just to remind them of the depressing nature of the film, let's do that. So we have this mediocre fighter, not bad, not great, making just the littlest amount of money fighting in church basements. He's also like the strong man for like a low tier, like gangster mob guy, but he doesn't seem to be like a high tier guy uh, who lives a very solitary kind of sad life, a very lonely life. When we first meet him, even though he's just won this fight in a, in, in a, a very ugly way, he's being kicked out of the gym that he goes to uh, he doesn't have many friends. He can't even get the attention of the girl that he likes at the pet store. Uh, he basically has one friend and then fate strikes when Apollo Creed comes to town and the person he was supposed to spar for the big New Year's Eve match uh, gets injured and they have to find a replacement and they find it in the Italian Stallion, a.k.a. Rocky Balboa. And they basically use him as a pawn. They know that it's going to be an easy win. And it's all about just, you know, Apollo Creed just embracing how great Apollo Creed is. It's going to make it like a little bit of a show. And what they don't expect is when given the opportunity, when given the moment to shine, Rocky Balboa does. Oh, he shines. But you know what? He doesn't have to win the whole thing. He can just stay the course the entire time. That's his win. That's his victory. Right? It's a movie about trying something. Yes. It's a movie about not just giving up and being like, well, I suck. All my friends suck. We all suck. Let's all suck together. Okay, so last week we asked you guys to call in with your most favorite treasured punch-to-the-heart memories of seeing Rocky. And here is what y'all said. The first time I encountered the Rocky franchise was in the third grade, the day before I took a standardized test for motivation. I've never seen a Rocky in my life. Uh, the only th- thing I know about Rocky is, you know, pop culture references from Bugs Bunny going, Adrian, you're Adrian, and all that. In college, my roommate decided one year on 420 to marathon all five Rocky movies. There was this bit of confusion in college where my friends kept saying they wanted to go dress up and see Rocky. And for some reason, I was thinking boxing gloves, and they were thinking, like, bustiers. Got me through being a salesman. I'd watch the training montage before work. When I was a kid, we had the box set on DVD, so I grew up on all five of the original films. In terms of lifetime views, it would have to be four, three, one, two, five. Uh, love pretty much all of them. A couple of them aren't great, but for the most part, they're good. My name is Adrian, and I grew up with people saying lines from the movie to me. They would say, you Adrian, and Adrian. I was at the video store, probably Blockbuster, and I saw it on the shelf and decided, you know what, I'm just going to watch it. I'm going to see what it is. I'm going to see if I like it. And I was pleasantly surprised. I really did like it. I think everyone's Rocky. There's always a moment in our life where we feel like the underdog. You want to put on that eye of the tiger, which is not even in this movie, and you want to get back on top. It, it is an iconic story, and I feel like the idea of Rocky is more known than even the film of Rocky, if that makes sense. I mean, this character feels like a real character in our world. It it kind of boggles my mind. I mean, there is a statue of Rocky, a fictional character, uh, in the middle 
of Philadelphia. I mean, like, it this he is a fictional character, and yet there was a monument created to this character. I mean, I've been there. I've, I've paid my homage. I've done the pilgrimage. <laughs> I went up the steps. But the thing is, yes, maybe we all want to be Rocky, but what if we're all more like a Polly? That's what I think when I watch this movie. A guy who, like, sort of thinks he's trying, is like, give me a job, hoping for a job, has some ambition, wants to be in advertising, maybe, says he can do it. But also, at the end of the day, like, the second anybody slightly insults him, he's like, that's it, walking away. Like, he quits things really easily. Everything is his is somebody else's fault. Polly might be who the common man is. Polly is definitely who the common man is in Rocky because nobody else in Rocky's world is doing anything with their life. I mean, he actually is a functioning member of society. It seems like he's holding down the job. It feels like he's got some respect there. Um, and he's blaming all his problems on everybody else. He's like, Talia Shire, you didn't get married, so I couldn't get married. And she's like, what's wrong with you? I feed you. I don't owe you anything. I don't know. If, I don't think I don't think anyone's watching this movie and going, maybe I'm a Polly. I, I, I feel like Rocky's a depressing character already. I, I do think that Polly and Rocky are very similar. I think that if anything, Rocky has an ability to show off his talent because he's a boxer. Uh, doesn't mean that people have to like his talent, but Polly, when push comes to shove, gets that Shamrock's meat sticker on the back of Rocky's, uh, you know, robe. I feel like he's doing his job. I mean, maybe it's a different story. Maybe it's, you know, the Polly movies. We could follow him. I mean, he does have a, an amazingly sexual and sensuous relationship with a robot in Rocky 3. <laughs> Rocky 4. Oh, is it Rocky 4 <laughs> with a robot? Okay, yeah. So uh, as you can see, all these movies blend together. Um, oh, but although I will say, the robe's a little too big. Poor Sly's got to be like, is this robe too big? Hey, look, I'm he's not in the robe business. He's in the advertising business. That's the robe maker's fault. If he made robes, then you'd have a valid point. Yeah, people seem kind of shocked that there even was like a meat sticker on his robe in the movie. Did Polly just invent like marketing on a on a robe? <laughs> Look, he might have been the impetus to why Danny Bonaducci had that goldenpalace.com temporary tattoo on his back during celebrity fights. Do you remember that? That was the most disturbing thing. Wow, Paul, that is a deep cut. That is a very deep cut. I know. <laughs> Too much watching of Fox when I was a child. Um, but let's talk about Rocky. That's why we're here. And I think to kick this off, let's hear what the man himself, Sylvester Stallone, thinks Rocky is. The... Um idea of doing this film was just to try to put into perspective like whatever everyone has a dream everyone has a slight dilemma in their life will they ever gonna make it and then you get to a point where I may not make it to a certain level but I can set my own goals I may not be the best in the world but at least I can I can rise to a level that I can be confident and calm with and and proud of myself and so I think that's what the film was about. You may not be the best in the world, but you can be the best in your own life. I thought that was actually a really astute way of putting it. You know, it's sort of like coming to terms with your mediocrity or coming to terms with who you are. Well, yeah. I mean, okay. All the Rocky movies maybe blend together. I think Stallone and Rocky himself have very much blended together. Yeah. Oh, yes. Very I mean... much. Like Stallone wrote a book about the making of Rocky right after the first movie came out. And he basically positions himself as Rocky. That was always, like, Stallone's kind of selling point. Like, I was the Rocky of my own life. Nobody ever believed in me. Like, Stallone has some crazy... Can I just tell you some Stallone stories? I, I am obsessed with Sylvester Stallone because I feel like he is a person who creates his own narrative in a way that is kind of mind-blowing. The story that I love is that 
uh, when he was making the movie Cobra, it was based on a book, and he tried to get his name on the book that Cobra was based on as the author of Cobra. Like that to me, he's like, no, I wrote the movie, and so I should be the author of the book that I based the movie on. Like that to me encapsulates Stallone. So yes, tell me, I need to know more about Stallone. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Stallone wrote Rocky, the great American myth of who we want to be and who we tell ourselves. And he also wrote himself. Like Stallone is the great American myth that we tell ourselves too. He's this guy who came out of nowhere, had a dream, wrote the screenplay, was like, you're not going to make this movie unless I star in it. I don't care how much money you give me. I'm starving. I'm broke. I'll turn it all down. I got a pregnant wife. I don't care. I must be the star of this movie. I believe in me, man. Did it. Wins Best Picture. A $1 million movie makes like over $200 million. He wins, right? I mean, and this is how he even frames himself when he talks about it. In his book, this is the opening line. I don't know why I'm so tempted, by the way, to just do this in a Stallone voice that I can't even do. All right, I'll do it in my bad non-Stallone. To tell you a little bit about myself, I'm not that much more exceptional than any other actor. <laughs> That's your Stallone. I love it's, it. Continue, okay, please. So, <clears throat> Listen, I'm the Rocky of doing bad Stallone voices. Uh, I've always maintained that maybe I had something unusual. Maybe I had something special that eventually I could sell. But the problem was finding someone who would buy that product. And that's exactly what it is, a product. That's how he saw himself. He saw himself as a product that he was trying to figure out how to market. Even his agent would tell him, according to Stallone, Whatever you have, no one seems to be in the market for. So he's got to create a market. So what does he do? He goes to Spain. He travels around Europe. He's a bit of a bum for a little bit. And he has this revelation. One day he's standing on the beach in Spain. He's looking out at the water. He hears this voice come into his head. It says, reach into your pocket, Sylvester, and grab your ass. Because if you want to know where you are and who you are, you'll find it back there. So he went home the next day to America. He slept on a bench at Port Authority and he decided he was going to start to write scripts. And what kind of scripts he was going to write? Well, he looked at the market. He was like, what's the product? The product is stuff like Easy Rider. It's like depressing movies, gritty, salt of the earth, low budget. I can do that. So he tries to write like gritty, depressing, low budget movie after gritty, depressing, low budget movie. Nobody will buy them. He's totally rejected for trying to fit into what he thought people were trying to write. I mean, one of the things he says is he says, I felt like I couldn't do any worse than the Easy Rider script and perhaps I could do it better. And he writes this thing called... Cry full and whisper empty in the same breath. Wow. <laughs> that is not a movie that was going to get an Oscar. So then he tries even harder. Like, he spray paints his windows black so that he loses all track of time. And he locks himself in this apartment, he says. He continues to write depressing scripts. Nobody will buy them. And then finally, he decides he wants to write something that he believes in. Not try to follow this trend. Not try to, like, turn himself into what's popular. But he wants to make a Capra movie. He believes in a Capra sort of character, so he decides he's going to write this story of Rocky based on a fight he had just seen between Muhammad Ali and this guy named Chuck Wepner. He puts everything into it, and and it works, and it magically works. And so that's how he tells the story, is like, I finally believed in myself. Everybody finally like believed in me once I believed in myself, once I wasn't trying to like chase this thing. And I think the truth is a little bit more complicated because he acts like he was never making any movies. He was broke. He was like basically eating cockroaches to survive. Right. But he was like really actually in like a ton of movies and doing fine. He was just like a low budget dude that people weren't paying attention to. Like he was in like Death Race 2000. Well, Lords of Flatbush, that was him too. Lords of Flatbush. He's actually like acting a lot and pretending like he wasn't there. He's in a Woody Allen movie as well. Yeah, he's in a Woody Allen movie. He's in Clue. Like he makes it sound like he's a lot more of an underdog than he actually was. Well, one of the things I found in doing the research on Rocky is – how the narrative changes. I listen to Stallone now 
1976 talk about Rocky and 2016 talk about Rocky. And every time he talks about it, it's a little bit more polished. The story changes just a little bit, you know, and it's an interesting thing because he's continually finessing his story. He's editing it. He's making it perfect. He's creating the perfect, you know, Sylvester Stallone script, which is a really impressive script because that person, Sylvester Stallone, has existed and been popular for so long. I mean, I think we're going to talk about Creed in this podcast as well. But the fact that Creed now has a sequel in 2018, this is a 40-year-long franchise. Sylvester Stallone is the person you can't keep down. He is the success. Even when he falls, he comes back. He makes moves like Copland. He goes away again. He comes back over here. He is unstoppable. And I think there is something that combines in our knowledge of Sylvester Stallone and Rambo and Rocky. In watching this film, I'm like, how much do I like this film? And how much do I like the narrative of Rocky and the iconicness of this character? Right. I mean, there's a difference between unstoppable and undefeatable. Because I think Stallone has lost a lot of matches in his world. I mean, you've done a whole episode on Rhinestone. Oh, yeah. I mean, I did a whole podcast called the Sylvester Stallone Podcast. Check it out. Uh, (laughs) But... He is someone who gets up. Rocky just wants to go the 15 rounds. And I think Sylvester Stallone's like, I'm not going to stop doing this until I'm dead. Well, I mean, sometimes I wish he'd lay down. Like, to me, the problem (laughs) with Creed was that, you know, Creed starts off really strong. Yeah. And you have the sense of Stallone passing the torch and saying, like, here, I'm going to give you this movie, Michael B. Jordan, carry this franchise forward. You know what? I'm even going to do you a solid. I'm going to get cancer and I'm going to die so that I can just give you this franchise. And he can't even do it. You know what I mean? He can't carry through with it because he, what drives me nuts about Creed is that like halfway through the movie, you feel Stallone being like, I'm not in this movie enough. Now I got cancer. Now it's miraculously cured. You know, I just wanted you to know that I was going to have cancer and it was going to be real sad for a second. It's my movie now. Now it's about me. And he just steals it right back from Michael B. Jordan, which annoys me. He can't help but make everything about himself. Even that whole Oscar race was all about, am I going to finally win my Oscar for being Rocky? And no, like... Having a cheap-ass cancer scare doesn't get you an Oscar. I'm sorry. I don't love Creed that much. I'll okay. Stop. Well, okay. <laughs> I loved Rocky Balboa, though. I loved the one right before this. Look, you said that he went away from the gritty, easy rider types of films to write something he's really passionate about. But I'm going to argue with you. The original script of Rocky is more in the vein of what he was trying to mimic. I mean, you have this original version, which is much darker, where uh, Rocky uh, basically is being trained by a racist who is Mickey. He throws the fight at the end because someone pays him. And the original script has Rocky throwing the fight at the end because he hates the world of boxing. And and Mickey is a racist. And, you know, Rocky's a real anti-hero. But that's not Capra. I believe this is a script of an actor who's really trying to showcase himself. And when I watched this film, I felt like, oh, wow, I'm really watching you know, this middle ground between a purely independent film and something of an actor going, look what I can do. The first hour of that film is really like like a reel to show off all the sides of Rocky. He's a good guy. How many times do we have to see Rocky be a good guy? He's a good guy to that girl on the street. He's a good guy to, you know, picking up the bum who's sleeping outside of the bar. He's, he's worried that his turtles aren't getting enough uh, flies. They're eating too much moss. Yeah, he's a good guy. He and talks lo- to his turtles and fish like they're his only friends. And looking at it, I'm like, oh, it, it kind of reeks of desperation. It's sort of like these 
films that people make, you know, short films to make, look at all the things I can do. And he takes this like kind of uh, quote unquote, like save the cat moment. This is like something that Blake Snyder coined when your character does something good. So you realize they're actually a good person in the first like kind of five minutes of the movie. And, you know, every kind of movie has a save the cat moment. No matter what the character is, it's a save the cat moment. Stallone spends the first hour just doing save the cat scenes until you get to the second hour, which is much more of the Rocky that we're used to. You know, the montages and the training and the, and the you know, the very uplifting, like, kid, you are always the best, but now you need to stand on your own two feet. You know, like this kind of morals and, you know, slogans. It's not like as compelling as some of the other films of the 70s, but yet it's iconic. How do you judge that? Well, and it beats out them. Like, it beats out Taxi Driver at the Oscars. Yeah. Like, for Best Picture, hands down. I mean, there must have been something in the audience that was like, we're kind of sick of these guys. Can we get, like, a nice hero up in here? Can we get a guy who's, like, sees the beauty in the nerd girl, things that I kind of roll my eyes at a little bit now, but he's like, oh, that girl, she's got a special thing, even though she won't talk to me. I'm going to tell her jokes every day. I'm going to go after this. And I'm going to, well, their romance is a little bit weird. I, I would like to get into that, too, but I would also argue that I think the reason why this movie does so well, it's at a time in Hollywood where, yes, even though you're having your, your Dennis Hoppers and you know, your Jack Nicholson, these not, they're not like leading men in the traditional sense. They're not like Cary Grant. You now put Sylvester Stallone here, who's acting but looks unlike anyone else. So all of a sudden, you're connected to him. I think this is why Rocky exists. It's now... You know, 40 plus years we've been living with this character. And I think um, Stallone tries so hard to say, like, I'm not this guy. I'm acting. It's, you know, it's hard to kind of draw the line between where Stallone starts and Rocky ends. I mean, it's even harder when he made a video called Stallone Meets Rocky, which is one of the extras on the Rocky uh, iTunes. Uh, Check it out. This is basically in an art gallery, and Stallone and Rocky bump into each other. I can't believe this. What are you doing here? Well, you know, I figured after 14 years we should meet, and I just wanted to meet you, and and I didn't have a lot to do in Philly, so here I am. You know, this is incredible. You know, I have so much I want to say to you. After all, you did give me everything. Yo, you gave me some stuff, too, like black eyes, bruises, ages. <laughs> I was just kidding about the black eyes, you know. <laughs> you got a sense of humor. I like that, but I don't know about this wardrobe. And to tell you the truth, Rocky, I did think you were taller. No offense, but I'll be right back. You know, he seems like a pretty nice guy and dresses real sharp. But, you know, I can't believe I'm meeting Sylvester Stallone. Hey, yo, Rambo! You rang? Hey, 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 here. I want you to have this. I won. The, I mean, we won this Academy Award in 1976 for Best Picture. Uh, hey, I guess we did a pretty good job, huh? Anyway, because of you and, and, and Rocky here, that's me and the rest of the Balboas, you got a pretty good life. And I just want to say, for a movie star, you're a pretty good writer, you know. Uh, I mean, he sounds like his own Rocky when if Rocky was drunk ever. Can we just say that he's <laughs> amping up his Rocky a bit? And also, he's like wearing cute little spectacles when he's Sylvester Sloan. I mean, this he's basically is, uh, like, he's basically like evil Captain Kirking himself. Uh, I mean, this is Tango and Cash, uh, Sylvester Stallone with, uh, I don't even know what version of Rocky this is, but I mean, it's crazy to see him do Rocky complimenting Stallone and Stallone complimenting Rocky. I don't know what the fuck this is, but please so find no one it. No else is going to compliment me. So I got to compliment myself. See? Okay, but you know where Rocky is not formulaic, though, in, like, the big broad strokes? 
is it never takes a twist towards really dumb melodrama. That's one of the things I really respect about this script a lot. Right. You know, because you have this kind of underdog story. They call it a rags to riches story, but he actually doesn't end up really that rich in the end of this. He makes like some money for the fight. He makes like $150,000, but you don't see the money like affect his life in the movie. You don't see anything change for him really. But you know, this kind of underdog got to put on a show thing. You'd expect there to be like, my mom's going to lose her house or like Carl Weathers is like a real super villain and he's going to do something evil or he's like a jerk or like the mafia gets involved and breaks his leg last minute or he gets torn in some way before what am I going to do? What's my choice here? And that never happens. It's just like he's going to fight. He's going to have to talk himself into it a little bit, but they don't add another twist of the screw. And I respect that about it. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I think what I'm trying to understand is how and why this film captured America's imagination in the way that it did. I mean, all the things that we associate with Rocky now came much later. Like, Eye of the Tiger didn't happen until Rocky IV. You know, in many ways, yes, it's a Capra story, but it's also a very sad story. He doesn't win. He just essentially proves to himself that he can stand toe-to-toe. And in the numerous redos of this, even the redos that Stallone does, he kind of forgets that central principle. It becomes more like, I'm going to kick ass. The ending isn't triumphant. I mean, it's triumphant in the love story of it, but it's not triumphant in the boxing of it. You know, the, the boxing is very emotional. I found myself, you know, tearing up at just watching him stand, just knowing that that was his dream. Like he says it right before the fight. The only thing I want to do is make it 15 rounds. That would be win enough. And he does. And that's a very, you know, non-traditional Hollywood ending that he just makes it 15 rounds. Um, Yeah. And the camera itself is even as much as we've thought the whole movie that it was about, is he going to beat Apollo? Can he beat Apollo? The camera does not even care. The camera's not really watching what's happening over there. You can kind of tell with the sound a little bit, but the camera does not really care whether or not he wins or Apollo wins. The camera is on his face. He's looking for Adrian. I mean, you could even sort of miss that like, he lost the fight. Like, right. It's, it's absolutely, I actually, in the editing and style choices, it's not even important. I actually was a little bit confused because they say split decision and then like they raise up Apollo's arms. I'm like, oh, okay, it, it's not really the focus. And as a matter of fact, the original ending, they carry Apollo Creed out and Rocky just kind of slinks off and finds Adrian and they walk off hand in hand. If you've seen that poster of Rocky, it's like the two of them walking with their backs to us. That was the original end of the movie. They went back and did reshoots and got that. And they actually used like Scorsese's crew for New York, New York, and they stole these shots. I mean, this movie, and I want to get into it in a little bit, is a real feat of independent cinema, like in a way that I've been blown away. I watched a bunch of like eight millimeter footage that John G. Avildsen shot and, and listening to all these stories. I mean, this is, this was everyone out there as a family making this movie that they believed in. And I think that that, maybe that hustle and that underdog nature of this film is what captures everyone's imagination. Well, yeah. I mean, two things happen like right at the very, very end of this ending. You know, Apollo gets announced the winner right when you hear Rocky tell Adrian he loves her for the first time. Right. And those two things take equal importance. Actually, with like the I love you, I think even being more important. I I heard there was also a version, too, where both Rocky and Apollo get carried out on the audience's shoulders. But some rowdy person, one of the extras, like punched Rocky 
in the ribs in real life, punched someone in the ribs. And someone was like, that's it. We're not doing that anymore. Oh, you see, the story that I heard, and again, this is the changing narrative of Rocky, is that they only had enough extras to carry out Apollo. And then you would look too obvious that these same extras were carrying out Rocky. Like if you put them back to back, you would see that they're the same exact extras because they only had a handful of extras. I think one of the cool things they did in this movie, and again, I know we keep on saying it's a low budget film, but just to get the idea... They had the um, the place where they're fighting, the forum, you know, in Philadelphia, and they show it with the lights on. Rocky goes to visit uh, the ring the night before, and you see this empty auditorium, and he's talking to the boxing promoter, and it's this big, beautiful shot. And then the night of the fight, it's dark, almost pitch black. And the reason why it's pitch black is they didn't have enough money for extras, but the director's like, if we see it with the lights on, the audience will picture it full with the lights off. And it's a great way of like kind of tricking your brain. But well, what I understand yeah. is they like offered people a free chicken dinner if they would come and watch this fight. Oh, really? Yeah. But the people were very confused by the fight because the way that Carl Weathers and Sylvester Stone did it is, you know, Stallone was like, he went out and tried to get a fight choreographer. And when he explained to the fight choreographer what he wanted, they were like, you're crazy. And so, of course, in Stallone's like heroic view of himself, you know, in Stallone's view of himself, everybody in the movie kept telling him he was crazy. And then right. he was like, but I'm right. And then it was right. Um, he well, wound up choreographing the fight himself. Yes. Like he took out a tape recorder and he narrated how the whole thing would go. And then he and Carl Weathers just like figured it out. He said to Carl Weathers, we're going to become the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers of the pugilistic world. He's the word pugilistic because he's very classy. Um, but I will say, again, that story also told by a different person is – they get into the ring on the first day of kind of rehearsals, and the director's like, this is a mess. Stallone, you have to go home and write this beat for beat, and we're going to rehearse this every single day till we get it right. And the director's showing them the 8 millimeter footage and going, look, this doesn't look real. we got to replace this. So it was a real joint effort, but in that Stallone way, when you watch the credits, boxing choreography. And when you listen to him talk about his boxing choreography, listen to this. You had, in the credits, it said that the boxing choreography was right. done by you. Right. So did you have, you had a background in boxing. No, it no? was no, it was just a matter of studying, yeah. studying the, uh, the styles. I went all the way back to uh, Stanley Ketchel fight and Jack Johnson uh, at the turn of the century. And what I wanted to do was take the best moments from fighting for the past 70 years and condense them into nine or ten minutes and that way we could I, I could I, I had a sure fire fight sequence and, you know at least <laughs> all those men that had paid the price for many many years I condensed it and that so I knew that was the formula then I had to choreograph it so uh, there was a rhythm there it just wasn't random slaughter if, as it were it, it was a kind of a ballet a movement and and it finally built to a crescendo it wasn't just haphazard punching I mean so is that true? I don't know. But I, I think, look, this movie was a collaboration. And when you listen to Stallone a lot of the times, it looks like it's really one man's vision. Yeah, he doesn't talk so much about the collaboration part of it. You know, I mean, I mean, he says that when they filmed the fight, that the audience who was just there to eat the chicken dinner, they, that they were confused because he claims that they shot the fight in real time with okay. just a bunch of cameras around. And that they just did it. That's like it not was. true. <laughs> well, that's what he wrote in his own book about oh it, right? Oh, my gosh. That's what he wrote about it. And that, like, they were super confused. They couldn't tell if the fight was real or not because of how they were shooting it. And then they just started to throw chicken bones at them. Hello. 
So I am a girl who wears jeans a lot. And I wear them a lot because I'm always sitting down in the theater watching things. And so I have to be very, 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 very comfortable. And you know what I just got? I just got a pair of jeans called the My Fit Jeans. They are incredible. And you are not going to believe what I'm about to tell you, which is that these jeans, they fit every woman, every woman. And all you have to do is just buy one of two sizes. Nothing complicated. No like inseams, waistbands, all of that stuff. They have two sizes that just are this simple. Stunning, which fits regular sizes 2 to 12, and gorgeous, which fits 14 to 20. Because the secret to these jeans is that they are made from an incredibly soft fabric called Flex Tech Denim. That means they conform to you. They don't bag, they don't sag, they don't pinch. They're just there. They're just perfect. And you can get them that simple. Um, Flex jeans come in three different washes. They come in a dark wash, they come in a light wash, they come in a black you know what? This is a podcast, so you can't see me or my legs right now. So instead, why don't you go to myfitjeans.com or their Instagram or their Facebook, and you can see how these jeans work on different body types for yourself. You can examine it, look at them, see how these girls feel, and then you can decide if you want to give them a shot yourself. You know, the My Fit jeans, they come in three shades. They come in a dark wash, a light wash, and a black. So if you love them and you want to get them in a couple colors, well, guess what? We got a deal for you. Right now, they're offering listeners that if you buy one pair, you can get 15% off that first pair for trying it. And if you buy two pairs, the second pair is 50% off. That is like getting a whole extra leg. I'm trying to do the math of it. That's like 150%. That's like two legs and a third leg. Anyway, it's an awesome jeans deal. So go to myfitjeans.com and enter the code UNSPOOLED if you want to check it out. myfitjeans.com, enter the code UNSPOOLED. You can get 15% off your first pair of these magical jeans and 50% off the second pair if you decide to get two. So that's promo code UNSPOOLED, U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D for this unbelievable deal at myfitjeans.com. Also, by the way, speaking of stretchy jeans, we have another new sponsor, Omaha Steaks. And uh, we're going to need those stretchy jeans because what they are doing right now, Omaha Steaks, this awesome fifth generation legendary butcher shop, you know, that's a hundred years of experience, by the way, these master butchers operating out of Omaha, they are offering an incredible feast, which I'm a little bit sad I'm doing this ad while I'm starving. But right now at Omaha Steaks, you can get $195 worth of meat for $49.99. That is 74% off. I don't actually like know that number off the top of my head, but I'm seeing it right here. And oh my God, because what I'm also seeing is what is in this gift package. Okay, are you ready for this? It is four hand-cut top sirloin steaks, two premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, as a Texan, I respect that, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four servings of perfectly brown potatoes al gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, and then you also just get four more burgers just for free, just tossed in. That is an insane amount of meat for $49.99. That is a mental, mind-blowing amount of meat. And you know what? It's the season where we just want to stay indoors and eat meat with the people we adore. So if you want to check it out, what you can do right now is you can go to omahasteaks.com and type unspooled in the search bar and add the family gift package to your cart. And then just get all of that meat shipped directly to your house. Their butchers will hand carve it. They will send them to you and you will eat them. So go to omahasteaks.com, code UNSPOOLED, and get your feast on. What I love about this movie are the characters. Like, every one of these characters is so interestingly specific that my complaints about the first half about, you know, seeing Rocky just be a good guy over and over again, if that's a downside, I'd say the plus side is everyone he interacts with is so unique, and I feel like they're characters we haven't really even seen on screen. I mean, Polly, the person you think that... We are. We all are. I mean, it's a great character. 
Polly is great. I mean, Polly is so complicated. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the supporting characters in here are really complicated. You know, you get so mad at Polly a lot. He's awful to Talia Shire. Well, he's a drunk, he's right? Horrible. He is a drunk who is frustrated with everything in his life. He's very angry. He's very resentful. I mean, that's the thing that's happening in this whole movie is everybody, including Rocky, a lot of the ways, teeters on being so resentful, they're not even going to try to fix themselves. Did you notice that in this film, each one of the characters or the main characters really upgrades himself. Like when Rocky starts training, he looks more attractive. When Talia Shire starts dating Rocky, she looks more attractive. When Pauly finally gets the opportunity to advertise Shamrock Meats on his robe, he looks the best that we've ever seen them. And I think it's the idea that if given the opportunity, we will be the best version of ourselves. It may not be that we are the best in that field, but we will be the best that we will be. And I thought that was interesting just visually. Every character visually transforms in this movie. Well, I think there's something to this idea that all you need is one person to start to try to rise up and do better, and then everybody looks up to them. Mm. You know? Like you have Rocky running around the neighborhood, running past the kids, being a guy who's actively working for something. And I think there's this idea that they all look at him, they might mock him a little bit, but his example sets a tone and everybody's like, well, what can I do? And I think he's, I think he really does serve as a role model for Philadelphia in that way. He mocks his, his effort to do that before he tries to better himself. Like before he tries to better himself, he's lecturing young Marie on the street, like, don't act like, I know it's a bad word. Don't act like a whore. Don't smoke. Don't do this. And then he goes, who am I to lecture you? But he could give her that lecture, you know, a couple of weeks later when he's actively trying to work towards a goal. Right. So by showing that he can make it, it allows all of us to believe in ourselves that we can make it. All the characters in the film and us in the audience, right? Yeah, I think that's what's so emotional about this film. I said before that when I was watching the fight, I was welling up. It doesn't take much for me to cry, but you see him struggling to stand on his feet. And when you see Apollo Creed just slamming into him, punching him. You feel it. You feel like, no, 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 just just a couple more minutes. The fight is relatively short in movie fight time. Yeah, they fast forward from round two to seven, and they're like, oh, 13, 14. Okay, we're at the last one. I, I was blown away by that. I thought, okay, here we go, 20 minutes of a fight. No, it it kind of quickly goes by. He's able to give you a real solid emotion. I think one of the best films I saw that kind of apes this film, I mean, obviously Karate Kid, uh, but I love that movie Warrior. Did you ever see that? It's like Joel Egerton. Oh, yeah, and I Ed, Ed, Tom Hardy? Yeah, I was going to say Ed Hardy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it's and Joel the guy Egg- with the crazy shirts. Yeah, exactly. It, it was a really interesting guy with the snakes. Um, that's the thing that this movie probably does the best. It It lays so much emotion down that – you are really in his character's position for that fight, which you don't often feel, or at least I don't feel that way. I don't know if I felt that way in Creed. I, I wanted him to win, but I didn't feel that same kind of, and I love Creed. Uh, I didn't feel that same kind of uh, connection to him in the fights. Well, I think what's fascinating about the Rocky fight, A, because it's the very first in this entire franchise, and B, because of how it he does it, you really don't know if he's going to win. 
You know, the first right. time that you watch this, like you really don't know. You're being told the whole time that he's going to lose, but he gets that first really good punch and knocks Apollo down first. And from that moment on, you're like, oh, I actually don't know what's going to happen. Even though he tells you literally the yeah, scene literally. before, this is what's going to happen. This is my dream to be. <laughs> Let me manage some expectations here. And then he does. It's like, but I guess it's like good storytelling. You can hide the ending in plain sight and we still don't know what's happening. Exactly. I mean, you know, we talked in the last episode in The Clockwork Orange about how there's, like, horrible stuff going on that's distracted by, like, colorful, bright camera work. Where you're like, well, it looks so pretty, it can't actually be as bad as what's happening. Right. What I think is interesting in Rocky is that the camera and the lighting are so dramatic that I think they really also elevate the film in a different way. You know, you have that very first fight scene. Let's just talk about that. Like, the opening fight scene that you have in the church basement, the first thing you see is, like— an old painting of Jesus. Yeah. You know, panning down to our new martyr, Rocky. But the way that they frame the audience, I love the the shading in it because they're all just like coming out of the blackness. It's like black shadows, faces coming out screaming. Everybody looks like they're in a freeze frame of like a Baroque painting. They all look like Caravaggio, you know? Mm. The whole chiaroscuro look of like light versus dark. And they all are just in these poised frames like they're like oh no you're massacring john the baptist you know right and they have this high toned look to the cinematography right away and in fact i was thinking about it at the beginning and then halfway through when you go to rocky's house he's got a poster print of a caravaggio on his couch so it's definitely on their mind that they want to make rocky look like high art and the caravaggio the painting that they pick is one from his series about saint matthew and it's about this guy just being pointed at being selected and told you are no longer just an ordinary bum. I'm going to elevate you. You're going to come with me. And so it's about a man getting selected from the pack. That's so interesting. I, I mean, you so, can also have the question, like, what's Rocky doing with that art? He doesn't seem like an art well, guy. Yeah, I was but, say, yeah. Like, that leads me to this question for you. Do you think that that's the director or do you think that that's Stallone? I'm going to say that's the director, right? I mean, sure, Stallone was talking about backpacking through Europe. I'm sure he saw a bunch of good museums. Uh, but, you know, Caravaggio himself, even as a painter, he was known as being like the boxer painter. He was always beating people up. I think he might have died from beating people up. Well, I think where I have issues with the Rocky franchise or where the Rocky franchise becomes a joke for me, and believe me, I've seen them all, most of them in theaters. Um, and I love Rocky Four. I'll stick up for it. Oh, I, I love, love Rocky Four <laughs> too. I mean, that's the one that hit me at the right age. Rocky Four and Rocky Three really were like, whoomp, right to me. Really, the only Rocky I don't like is Rocky Five. Um, where would you cre- create your Rockies, by the way? Uh, one, then Balboa, then four, just for kicks. Okay. Uh, but four, I'm also a big Dolph Lundgren head. I think he's the world's most perfect man created in a laboratory. Wow. Laboratory. Okay. I mean, definitely back in the Rocky Four era, <laughs> one million percent. I mean, he's a science whiz. He's a genius. He's yeah. everything. He's everything. Is that I think Stallone followed the wrong version of Rocky, right? Like the montage in this is very basic. It's it's kind of beautiful and simple. And, you know, it's it's almost ridiculous in and even the lyrics of the song that's playing under it, it's like, there's literally a lyric that's like, trying hard now. It's like, trying hard now? Trying hard now. It's so hard now. Trying hard now. 
Now, while that song is a bit ridiculous, the Bill Conti score is amazing. They actually re-edited the end of the film because the score was so powerful. They didn't want to have Rocky leave the ring on this dour note, just walking off into like the bowels of the stadium holding her hand. They wanted to have something more triumphant. So this score makes this movie in many respects. Like it's synonymous with the film, but without it, is it still Rocky? I don't know. I want to talk to you just a little bit about what Stallone wanted Rocky to be. Because I was talking about this idea that, you know, he followed the wrong things. Like we went into bigger training montages instead of into these characters. Like he said his original trilogy uh, was Rocky II, Rocky would go to night school, enter politics, and become mayor of Philadelphia. And then in part three, he would be framed by the political machine because he was too honest, impeached, and wind up back in the ring at 37, broken down, but happy. Oh, so he's just going straight, Cabra. Yeah. I mean, come like, on. <laughs> right out the gate, right? Isn't that amazing? Like, that yeah. was his idea. I mean, yeah, he's doing Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So it's fun how all these movies have kind of been relating to each other. Again, the die does not lie. Um, yeah, I was thinking about Mr. Smith even when you have him getting interviewed by um, by the news people. Yeah. Like, he's punching the thing and they're sort of making a joke out of him. Polly's very touchy about them making a joke out of him. Also, you know, Rocky... I want to say this, just he's a continual babbler. Like here, I want to play just like a little bit of him babbling right now, Ed mm-hmm. Adrian. He's a guy who just does not shut up. Yeah, I originally, I originally done it. I carry pictures of all my fights. I originally done it in the baby Crenshaw fight. You see that? Big baby's about the size of an airplane. I broke both my hands on his face. I lost that fight, but that's a nice picture, don't you think? See how it works there? Real nice. Uh, come on, you having a good time? I'll tell you. You can see I ain't too graceful, you know what I mean? I don't move well. But I'll tell you, I can really swat, you know what I mean? I I love that scene. It captures something that feels so real. You know, it's almost like that conversation is meaningless, uh, but yet it's endearing. It's one-sided. I mean, he's doing almost all of it. He's like, but let me tell you, I'm a left-handed. You know what left-handed is? I'm left-handed. Southpaw, southpaw. But then the one time he actually kind of shuts up and gets nervous is when he's getting interviewed by news people. Right. It's like he can talk all the time when he's in control and when it's like his turf, but when it's not his turf, he's a totally different person. Uh, Tell me, Rocky, just between us, where did you get the name Italian Stallion? Oh, uh, I invented that uh, about eight years ago when I was eating dinner. Rocky, now your payday will be $150,000. Any comment? Uh, you you no. got no comment, Rocky, right? No. No comment. Well, you see, I love that relationship, and it's it's a dynamic relationship. Also, the relationship I'm kind of obsessed with is the driver of, like, the low-level mafia boss who just hates him and ridicules him. And, and for no real reason. I don't understand it. You know, it's like no one gives this guy a break. You know, like, he's like, hey, Rocky, what did the truck look like? What do you mean? So the truck that hit you in the face. You know, it's like <laughs> ridiculing him for, like, getting beaten up. Meanwhile, Rocky could probably beat the shit out of that guy. But yet, like, it's like a smaller kid picking on a bigger kid. And Rocky, although he is big, he carries himself with such low status. Yeah, I mean, okay, this might be more telling about me than mm-hmm. Rocky in a way. But I'm amazed watching this film at how good people are at, like, expressing their angry feelings and then getting past it. Mm. As an only child, you don't get to do that very much. Right. Like, I'm an only child. We never get to yell or scream at anybody. See, I did like, that with my mm. mom. I'm an only child. I did that with oh. my mom, yeah. You got to yell at it? Oh, all to... the time, yeah. So you're good at conflict resolution. 
I think I am, yeah. I feel like, you know, you realize that when you're in a safe relationship with somebody, you can really blow it out because they're still going to be there no matter how crazy you get. Wow. My parents just agreed with me. So I don't think- Oh, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, think I, got I used to, to give my mom nosebleeds from getting herself upset. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I admire not the conflict style of everybody in this movie because it's a lot of screaming and insulting right. each other, but everybody kind of makes up eventually. It makes me think of when I was in, in, in anthropology classes in college, we would talk about island culture, mm-hmm. about how on tiny islands- there was this thing where when anybody would fall down on like Pulau or something, right. all the villagers would laugh at them. And it was a way of relieving tension in a tiny island where you're just kind of quietly mad at people all the time, but there's no good way to get rid of it. So when they trip on a route, you're like, ha ha. So you're basically describing an island of Nelsons from The Simpsons. It is basically an island of Nelsons from The Simpsons. And so- Rocky is like... An island in itself, this city, this neighborhood, it's treated like an island where everybody knows everybody, everybody knows each other's business. The driver of the mobster knows that he's going on a date with Adrian before Adrian knows she's going on a date. Right. Well, you know, and I think that there's an element of that happening behind the camera as well. We talk about this movie being low budget, and it's so low budget that they were almost going to sneak away to Philadelphia to get the exteriors. The producers did not want them to go shoot this movie in Philly, and they felt like they couldn't cheat it in L.A., And this movie feels like the entire thing was shot in Philly. I mean, the movie is only shot over 28 days total, which is, you know, very short time for a film. And when they're shooting in Philly, like that classic scene of him running up the stairs, you know, arms in victory, which again, in watching it now, it seems so simple. It's kind of so plain, you know, um, that big scene, this climactic scene, there's three people on set, literally three people. It's like you have a focus puller, you have a cameraman and someone else because there's like someone taking a picture of them and you see three people with a little camera set up, no mics, no anything. You know, you have John Avelson on the hood of the car, literally holding the camera on the hood. They didn't have enough money for trailers. They didn't have enough money for food. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner was pizza the entire time they were shooting in Philadelphia. They would wait to start takes until the train started going so they would be able to add atmosphere like this movie was so down and dirty and it was it is the rocky of movies well yeah i think it's interesting that all the mistakes in the movie the things that didn't go right during production wind up being great like even the robe the robe wasn't supposed to be too big for him i think it's a lovely character beat that he yeah. has a nice robe it doesn't fit him it's, oh polly fucking up again like oh right it was supposed to fit him. It just didn't. So Stone was like, what if I just acknowledge how the robe doesn't fit? Same thing with the shorts being the wrong color. Yes. When he shows up and there's a giant painting of him. It was supposed to be the white shorts he was wearing. They paint the red shorts. And, you know, you get that little note of like, oh, it doesn't matter to these people at all if it's accurate, which is makes the scene extra sad. And then I think it makes it even more important that like by the end of the fight, he's getting beaten up so much that his shorts are red. Like they actually are red in the front because of all the blood, which wouldn't happen. And Yeah, and you're talking about these mistakes that become crucial pieces of storytelling. Yes, there are these mistakes that add to the movie, but then there are these things that happen because they don't have a lot of money. And they kind of meet up with this guy, Garrett Brown, who invents this thing called the Steadicam. Now, if you don't know what a Steadicam is, it's a very interesting way of shooting. It's a camera that's kind of held over your head by wires and, and and pulleys, and you have to kind of keep it balanced, but it gives you this ability to move and weave around actors. It, it, it gives a, a tremendous sense of motion. Raging Bull, obviously this movie Rocky has it, uh, Aliens has it, and Garrett's like, we got to use a Steadicam for this movie. It's amazing. I invented it. It's going to be great. And he used Rocky's iconic run up the stairs of the Philadelphia Art Museum to show like, 
wouldn't it be cool if we did it like this? And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, we'll use your steady cam, sir. Like, but it wasn't like, oh, we need a steady cam to capture this. It just happened to be that Garrett Brown's like, I made this thing, we need to use it. And then you get this fight scene where you're living in the in the ring, you're, when you're in the meat locker, you're also kind of moving around the meat because of the Steadicam. Steadicam allows you to kind of get over people's shoulders and and see the punches. It actually, in many respects, it allows you to hide some of the fake fighting because you're in these angles that you can get away with, you know, a, a cheat a little bit more because you're so up close to it. Doesn't it also vicariously make your feet suffer to see that he's running in converse? Yeah, when I saw him stretching, I was like, "Ooh, I feel bad for those ankles." He doesn't want to. Uh, he doesn't want to ice skate because of those ankles. I was like, "You shouldn't be wearing those Converse, bro." <laughs> Stallone said that he ran like 19 miles that first day, and then 11 miles the next day. Are you? Are you? Are you? I'm looking at your eyes to see if you believe him. I don't know what to believe. Look, I, he made a great movie, but I think it's all bullshit. <laughs> I think it's all like, you know, it's like the winners make history. So I think like, you know, every time you tell a story, you just flourish it a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, he actually said that he was such a crazy hard ass making the film that some of the crew members took their name off the credits. Whoa. And then he was like, and now they're trying to sue me to get back on the credits. And it's like, oh, Stallone. I mean, I love the meat scenes. Like, I love the meat locker so much. Oh, I just yeah. think it's so beautiful and so geometric and so stark and so colorful. And I love how... There's even kind of this like thematic callback where like one of the things the driver, the driver that you love, yes, calls Rocky as he calls him a meat bag. You know, he's a meat bag. Then he goes and he's punching these meat things. And there's this idea that like the human bodies are just meat. They're just punching other meat. It's anonymous. When he's punching that meat and his hands get so bloody from it, I thought that was such a great touch. It's like just to see like the meat. Well, I was like, blood. is the blood from the steak or from him? I think it's from the meat. I think it's like, because it's like a fresh carcass. I I don't know. I don't know much about uh, meat mongering. I felt like it was meat blood, not uh, Rocky blood. Yeah, I feel like it's a little vague. I feel like <laughs> it's a little vague. You know, just to go back to uh, Polly, because uh, Polly plays a big part in the meat world. I just want to tell you a couple things that he did in the film to kind of have this character come to life. And it will kind of blow your mind. He wanted to be dirty and he wanted to be uncomfortable because he felt his character was always uncomfortable. So he um, would put sweet vermouth, uh, which he hated on his neck, wow. like kind of make it like a perfume. So he would smell the thing that he hated all the time. Uh, then he wore layer upon layer of clothing. So it would be very hard for him to move. Like he couldn't move smoothly. He was just like this big kind of Ralphie from a Christmas story, just like puffed out guy. And he dipped his hands in turpentine so they would feel so tight so you would have arthritis so like what he was doing and how he smelt i mean turpentine on the hands and vermouth on the neck you know he Ugh, eating lighting and crapping thunder <laughs> i mean they shoot him to emphasize his body you know he's like in the chair but leaning back it's like his belly is more prominent than his face almost yeah have you, i mean i couldn't tell you at all how old polly is you know like no i mean is polly 30 is polly a hard driven 30 is well, polly like 40? i mean i think polly and rocky are the same age yeah, so they're 30 right yeah which I mean, Talia Shire is 32, yeah. I mean, Talia Shire, can we talk about this character? Because Adrian is introduced in a very interesting way. You know, when we first meet her, you know, what we know about her is that her brother's like, she's slow, you know. And it's interesting because she does like a 180 in the film. Like, by the end of the film, it's a very different Talia Shire. But is it the same idea that like, 
once someone gives her the opportunity to love, she can blossom. You know, once Rocky gets the opportunity to fight, he blossoms. Like, yeah, their date is really interesting. You know, like he goes to her house. His brother has told him that he, she knows that they're going on a date. She clearly doesn't. She's making a Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah. Polly throws the turkey in the alley, which I find very offensive to turkeys. Oh, I, love I mean, turkey. I don't understand why they didn't have Thanksgiving dinner while they were there. Come on. Don't throw that perfectly good turkey out the window. Yeah. But you get this interesting scene where she goes into her bedroom. She closes the door. And you have Stallone trying to urge her out. And when he keeps turning around and looking at Polly, but he's basically looking at us like, I want to go on a date with this girl. You know? Yeah. He's trying to get us involved in the scene. And then when she opens the door and she's like ready to go, you're surprised by that. She makes like a choice right there where you're like, oh, this girl's different than I thought. Right? Because up right. until that point, she could just be sort of like henpecked by her brother, quiet at the pet store. But she gets fully dressed and opens the door and doesn't smile about it. But she's like, fine, we're going to do this. And then you realize she's got some wrinkles. Like, he does all the talking on the date. You know, he doesn't really give her a word to even try to talk. Like, it's interesting that he's, like, pursued this date with her so much. And all he wants to do is talk about himself to her. Right. Where he's finally like, okay, do some skating. Stop skating for a minute. Let me show you some pictures of myself. And I'm like, the dude is counting down time. She doesn't have all that time. She got 10 minutes to skate. And you're like, hold still. Look at this. (laughs) You get a little mad at Rocky. But what I think is so interesting in her character, he tells her to come back to the house and she feels like she knows exactly what that means. Right. You know, like you singled me out like the lame animal in the herd. You're making me go to your apartment and she won't do it. And there's this stubbornness about her that I think is her second real sign of personality in the film Mm -hmm. where she's not just going to do what he says. And then, of course, she does finally do what he says. But, like, her resistance to him I find really interesting. Because, like, there's a way where you watch that scene where he drags her into his apartment where she she is clearly already scared to death of him. Yeah. And, like, you really see it from her point of view. I would be scared to death. He's got a knife in his mattress. I know. He's not inside his apartment for two seconds before he strips down to his underwear. You know, she doesn't want the neighborhood to even know that she's there. You know, she's trying to be a lady in the city, like, goes out to the window and yells that she's in his house. I would kill him. Right. And he, I mean, he locks the door on her the second they walk inside. So her clenching her purse and being like, whatever this is, I don't want to do it. Him basically lying to her face and being like, the couch is really nice as he sweeps trash off of it. Yeah. You know, she really sees him in this apartment for everything that it is. And she's not going to... Give in easily, although he's actually, he steamrollers her. Like, he doesn't listen to her at all, you know? Right. I felt the same way watching it. Like, you know, you're supposed to see him as being this, like, kind of guy who just wants to connect with her. But she's reacting incredibly appropriately to this guy that she doesn't really even know. And I started to think, wow, I wonder if the first half of the movie is the way that Rocky views her. And then the second half of the movie is who she actually is like, you know, we're seeing it through his eyes. So he only sees her as this one person, but she like, he doesn't allow himself to actually even open up to her. It's not like that. She's changed. He's just changed the way that he's dealt with her. Yeah. It's sort of like he selects the girl who he knows is, well, she takes off her glasses. She'll be beautiful. So Mm -hmm. I'll just take off her glasses. Like I found her. I'll take off the glasses from here on out. She's the girl I want her to be. By the way, before we even leave picturing this apartment that she's walked into, can we just talk about how amazing the production design is in making it the grossest apartment ever? No, I agree. That apartment was so gross. Yeah, there's fingerprints on anything that there could be fingerprints on, like on the door frames, every cabinet handle. It's so filthy. It really freaks me out. I couldn't take my eyes off it when they fell to the floor. I was looking at like that weird drawer. Like everything 
it wasn't even painted over. It was like, it just felt so lived in. And you mentioned the knife in the mattress. I never noticed that before, but it's like a Rambo knife in the mattress. Like this is the house of like a serial killer. Yeah, He just told her that like the floor that she's standing on is where all the giant bugs are. And he's like, come kiss me on the floor, baby. Uh, like, ah, no. I mean, we've all been on, on interesting dates. Have you ever walked into a situation like that where you walked into someone's apartment and you're like, oh, boy. Oh, yes. I mean, and I did date an MMA fighter for a minute. So it's okay. like, oh, okay. So this is what it's like when the, the shower is covered in hand bandages. Ooh. Oh. Ooh uh, uh. He had two hairless cats. Ooh. Boy, anyway. Boy. Okay. <laughs> um, but let's talk about Apollo Creed because yes. he's such a big part of this movie. He doesn't appear until half an hour into the movie. Mm-hmm. I think this film is also a little bit redemptive for him. Because what do we know about Apollo Creed before we see him in the ring? He's basically a really good promoter. Mm-hmm. You know, he's making all the calls. He's talking about sending flowers to the mayor's wife. He's doing the work of what you have to do to succeed behind the scenes. That's not just like being in shape. Like Apollo Creed also sees himself as a marketing figure. You know, he also sees himself as a product. And what happens to him in the course of the film is he winds up realizing he's also in this for the boxing. He has to remember that he has to know how to fight too. That's what happens to him in the closing battle. Well, yeah, I think he's so concerned about creating the spectacle. You know, he comes to this town as a force of nature. You know, he's on TV and he is creating this big spectacle. He is Apollo Creed. And when he enters into the ring, you know, the difference between him and Rocky is so gigantic. He comes in, you know, dressed as George Washington, throwing glitter to the crowd. He has these amazing Statue of Liberty women kind of around his boat that people are pushing through. You know, he He has a sense of humor that we actually haven't seen him have until he's in the ring performing. Rocky happens to be facilitating part of the spectacle, right? Apollo Creed doesn't want to fight Rocky because he cares about how he fights. He's like, no, Italian stallion, that will look good. That like, he's looking at the poster. He's not looking at the content, which, you know, in many respects, if you're talking about Stallone being a frustrated actor in Hollywood and not getting the parts he wants, he's probably making that about the producers and directors. It's like, no, no, he's looking at what people want to see not what's actually important, like the performances and the characters, you know, it's like, and that's what Rocky is. Rocky's the real deal. Apollo Creed is also great, but it's like, he's more about the gloss. That's true. You do imagine that Sylvester Stallone must've felt like casting agents looked at him and just saw Italian stallion guy. They didn't see like him being able to play any other part. They didn't see him as like anything but mobster roles or heavy roles. He played like what? A guy, Machine Gun Joe in Death Race, a guy who just is like, hey, I'm a machine gun people. I mean, he wanted to have a range. His very first role that he ever got to play, he was eight years old. He's in a Cub Scout play about Smokey the Bear. He played the ass half of the bear. Uh, he could do a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, the whole thing with Apollo, too, is he's not a villain. There's no villain in this movie. It's very similar to E.T. This is a story about one person's journey, you know, and and – That's a really tough thing to pull off, too, to make a movie that's so compelling, where the antagonist is really your own self-doubt. Yeah, exactly. Like, the moment when Rocky gets offered the fight, you know, you're expecting, like, him to be like, yeah, but instead he has this really quiet no. Mm. And that's the kind of surprising thing. Like, he's fighting his own instant sad no. Or, Or the scene that I really love that kind of rips me in half is when... 
Burgess Meredith when Mickey, who, by the way, you know, you know what else you've seen him in? Oh, I mean, he's my favorite. He's the penguin from the 1960s <laughs> I was Batman. I you to say that. Wait, let's play a little bit of him as the penguin just to set this up. I'm going to unleash the most bizarre, senseless barrage of umbrellas onto Gotham City. It'll be senseless to everybody but the Batman, whose keen mind will unquestionably piece together the clues to my crime. So you have him show up at this house. He's been busting Rocky's balls this whole right. time, taking away his locker, saying that he's a failure, saying he's a failure for an interesting reason. He's a failure because he had talent and he wanted right. more from him. He shows up. He gives this long speech that's really kind of heartbreaking to me. Like he talks about all the times he's been beaten up. He tries to show Rocky the pictures that mean a lot to him about his own youth. He's going ignored because Rocky's so mad. And then you have this like beginning of a really passionate scene that Sylvester Sloan and Avildsen kind of underplay by having a toilet flush right when it really gets going. But you can't buy what I'm going to give you. I mean, I've got pain and I've got experience. Well, I got pain. I've got experience too. Now, listen, kid. Hey, look, yes, hey, Mick. What? I need your help about 10 years ago, right? 10 years ago? Right. You never helped me. You didn't care. Well, if you wanted help, I say, if you wanted help, why didn't you ask? Why didn't you just ask me, kid? Look, I asked, but you never heard nothing. Well, I, I, uh, I know I, I'm 76 years old. And, uh, uh, wow, I don't even think I really pulled that all together. Can I say like a random deep cut that maybe will mean nothing to almost anybody listening to this, but means a lot to me? Yeah. That interaction between... Mickey and Sylvester Stallone, that whole, like, where were you when I needed you? I don't want you anymore. Reminded me of this cartoon that was my favorite cartoon when I was a kid that came uh, out after Rocky. Did you ever see a cartoon called The Last Unicorn? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, greatest thing ever. Greatest right. thing ever. There's this amazing character in there, Molly Grew. And Molly Grew sees the unicorn. She's like this kind of rough and tumble woman. She hangs out with thieves. And when she sees the unicorn, she gets mad for the exact same reason. And watching that scene in Rocky, I thought of that scene. I just want to play the scene for all my last all unicorn right, heads out there. Where have you been? Where have you been? Don't you talk to her that way. I'm here now. <laughs> oh, and where were you 20 years ago? Ten years ago, where were you when I was new? When I was one of those innocent young maidens you always come to? How dare you? How dare you come to me now when I am this? I love The Last Unicorn. That was the movie I watched more than anything probably when I was a kid. I remember it very, very well. And I think this is where I wrestle with this movie. I'm back and forth on it. Because did I enjoy it? Absolutely. Is Rocky a part of my culture? One million percent. When I'm playing Mike Tyson's punch out and I'm watching my little guy run, you know, that's Rocky. You know, every, you know, thing that we know of is Rocky in our culture. It, 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 he is as close to a real character. Rambo's not like that, but Rocky is. And I go back because I go, well, is, is this movie derivative of other things or is it setting the bar? I, I, I don't know how I feel about this movie, because when I tell people, oh, yeah, we're watching Rocky this week on the podcast, they go, that's on the 100 best movies of all time. And that happened for so many people. It's like, 
I thought one of the best movies of all time. I mean, it's such a good, it's such a good feel good movie. I love this movie. I love this yeah. movie. I'm mad that we still have these movies a little bit. Right. Mad, mad is a strong word. But like once you get into Apollo having a kid named Adonis, I'm sort of rolling my eyes. It sounds to me very VC Andrews. How you have a woman <laughs> in one generation named Ruby and her daughter is Opal. And I'm like, come on. And then uh, I have like Drago's kid come back for the new Creed. I'm like, can we do something else with our time, please? Well, but- what I liked about Creed was it was a reboot that paid homage to the original Rocky. And I, I, I feel like that idea of what Creed was felt very similar to Rocky. As a matter of fact, as soon as I finished Rocky last night, I went and started watching Creed. And as I was rewatching it last night, I was like, I love Creed. And I do like Creed, but there was something about seeing it in the theater. And I'm thinking like, maybe that's what Rocky is too. It's like, you're just in the moment. And I left Rocky without any doubt it should be on the list because emotionally I'm there. And I wonder if these movies are about like, that hit of dopamine you get from the victory of this underdog story. I wonder, like you just got me thinking about, I had to interview Mike Tyson a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. Um, he worked on a documentary about boxing and he said something that really blew my mind because I hadn't thought of it that way. He's like, in every generation of boxers, whenever you look at who the biggest boxers are, the boxers who are the most dominant in the scene, it tells you the story of America. You know, the very first major boxers were Irish because they were the lowest people on the totem pole. And whoever the lowest people on the totem pole are, the people who don't have any choice but to fight, you know, which even Rocky says, he's like, I had to do this. I don't have anything else. He's like, that tells you the story of America. So whenever you look at who the big champion is, that champion represents the people who have the hardest time right now. Wow. Isn't that really beautiful? Yeah. So what does that say about Rocky and being the hit of 1976. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, the movie gets near the racial tensions. You know, right. you feel very much so that Apollo knows what this fight represents. I mean, Apollo even comes out and says it. Without a ranked contender, what this fight is going to need is a novelty. This is the land of opportunity, right? So Apollo Creed on January 1st gives a local underdog fighter an opportunity. A snow white underdog, and I'm going to put his face on this poster with me. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm sentimental. And a lot of other people in this country are just as sentimental, and there's nothing they'd like better than to see Apollo Creed give a local Philadelphia boy a shot at the greatest title in the world on this country's biggest birthday. Now, that's the way I see it. Apollo is a showman, and he's creating a spectacle. And in the 70s, you know, pitting these two people against each other makes it automatically interesting. You know, it, 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 it's subtly playing into it. But no one here, I wouldn't say Rocky's a racist. I wouldn't say, you know, and, and maybe in a weird way, that helps the movie uh, be so relatable because it, it doesn't really take sides. It's kind of just there. We get yeah. why it's there. I mean, it feels like it's there without being there. You know, uh, Apollo basically says like, yes, an Italian helped find America, but now America is me. I am George Washington. Right. You know, and when you look around the ring, the people that Mickey is mostly training are African-American. Right. You know, and so you you sense that Rocky feels like he's from an outdated time just from the way he looks. You yeah. know that he belongs to a past generation of fighters and that the future of boxing doesn't look like him. But I don't, I don't know. I feel, I do admit, I do feel a little weird when like they're fighting and, you know, Rocky gets a good hit and you cut to the bar of people cheering and everyone in the bar is white. Right. Well, I mean, I think that that's playing on the Philadelphia stereotype maybe. And I think that that's what Creed does so well. It's kind of taking that back, you know, and showing a different 
part of Philadelphia. I think the side of Philadelphia you see in Rocky are predominantly white people. And, you know, in Creed, I think you're seeing the other side of that. Hey, you know who a person is that I totally love, that I feel like has totally shaped my brain in so many ways? It is Gilbert Gottfried. It is Gilbert Gottfried amazing movie star, amazing comedian, and the host of Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal podcast. You know, if you know Gilbert Gottfried from his film work, I mean, we're talking like Aladdin, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Problem Child. Me, I am, and I am not ashamed to admit this, I'm a hot to trot person. I love hot to trot. Anyway, Gilbert Gottfried, his podcast is so awesome because it's him sitting down and just getting the most interesting stories out of people like Weird Al and Judd Apatow and Ira Glass. Because when you're faced with Gilbert Gottfried, I mean, I'm only imagining here, I'm only projecting, and I'm also like calculating from what I know from listening to the show. You want to just tell him everything, not just like things like the horror movies they love, but their weirdest stories from the road, about the folklore they believe in, some dirty jokes. I'm like, all right, Gil- Godfrey, you can get the dirty jokes from us. And this week in particular, he's got a super special new episode with Alan Alda. You know Alan Alda. Alan Alda, the star of like MASH and the West Wing and the Aviator. Alan Alda sitting down with Gilbert Gottfried. You do not want to miss this. So go check out that new episode and every episode of Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast. Listen to him drag stuff out of Rosanna Arquette and Patton Oswalt and Peter Fonda, for Christ's sake. Peter Fonda. Every Monday, wherever you listen, be it Stitcher, Apple Podcast, however it is, get Gilbert in. Okay, and now it is time for this week's guest. And we have, at the risk of sounding cheesy, he's a knockout. It's Freddie Roach. He is a professional boxer. He was born in 1960, so he was 16 when Rocky came out. He was already fighting and training and being merciless, as he'll talk about. After retiring from professional fighting, he went on to have a full other, whole-on second masterpiece career as a boxing trainer. We're talking like training Manny Pacquiao and then training people in the movies like Mark Wahlberg and The Fighter. So with all of that buildup, hello, let's say hi to Freddie Roach. All right. Well, my first question to you is, what do you make of Sylvester Sloan in Rocky as being able to portray a boxer? He portrays a boxer very well, I think. Um, You know, the Rocky movies are really uh, well done. Um, Fortunately, at the time Rocky was made, I was a professional fighter at the time, and I disliked the movie a little bit because that that never happened to me, you know, the the long shot and all that and so forth. But later on, I I came to appreciate the movie, and it was great for the boxing audience and, and the entire world. He pulled it off very well. Can you explain Rocky's strategy to me in a fight? Because I don't know very much about boxing, but when I watch it, I, my impression of his strategy is that he just takes a lot of punches and takes a lot of abuse until the other person is tired, and then he ekes out like a barely win or a barely lose or a draw. Um, that, that's the style of most counterpunchers, because usually when you're a counterpuncher, you're behind, because you're giving your opponent a target, you're giving him kind of a shot, where he can land the shot, but you can counter. And a lot of times the timing on the counter doesn't come to late in the fight. And then most counter punches went by KO late late in the fight when the other guy's way ahead. That's one thing about being a counter puncher is usually there's a lot of punishment in the earlier rounds and so forth. But then when you start getting the distance and the timing, then the counter starts working and the counter puncher usually wins by knockout. 
Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the overall entire Rocky franchise, like where it goes after the first Rocky. What do you make of the next ones? They were all really, really good boxing stories and so forth, and he played that same role model as uh, more of a counterpunch, you're taking punishment. But the thing is, usually people who fight that style have short careers. But Rocky, uh, Rocky was able to keep coming back because <laughs> he had a great audience behind him. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, because I imagine you've seen firsthand that one of the hardest questions a boxer has to ask himself is when do you know how to retire, which is a, a question I always uh, wonder that, about Sylvester yeah. Stallone. Re- re- retirement in boxing is so difficult. It's, um, well, I remember the first time I retired and then I remember the first time I made the comeback. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I remember the second time also and the third. But the thing is, it's really, really, really addictive sport. It's hard to quit. And uh, for me, in my last pro fight, I was embarrassed to be in the ring a little bit because I didn't try to win for the first time in my life. I just didn't have that hunger. So uh, I retired on TV at the post-fight interview, and I said, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, but I'm not coming back. It is one of the hardest things in the world to do, though. So it's less about the body and and more about even, like, the the mental fire on the inside. And and then after you made that tough choice, like, you moved into not just training, like, some of the greatest big names around, you know, like Manny Pacquiao, Oscar De La Hoya, but also... I mean, you trained Mark Wahlberg out here in the fighter. Like, what was that like? It's funny because after my, when I first retired, I didn't start training for for about a year because I was drunk for about a year. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I just didn't know what to do with myself. And then I spent all my money and I said, you know what? I better go back to work. I I said, I got to pay the rent. So I started training fighters. And fortunately, um, my first fighter to help was Virgil Hill, and he was an Olympic silver medalist, and he's a very talented kid. And six months later, I had my first world champion. From there on, I, I, I realized that I found something that, that I do better than fight, and that's to teach. I mean, I know this is maybe a loaded question because you know so many people who've made boxing movies and you've worked with so many of them. But is Rocky your favorite boxing movie? Um, actually, not my favorite. I think my favorite is a movie called Somebody Up There Likes Me. It's a really, really nice story and is one of my favorite movies. And um, I, I like sports movies, though. And I saw The Naturals is my favorite baseball movie. And like Hoosiers might be my best basketball movie. <laughs> so I love those. I, I love sports movies. Okay, so I want to ask you about a rumor I heard, which is when Mickey Rourke was training to be a boxer, like before the wrestler even, you helped train him and you made him cry? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, yelled, I yelled at him one day and I gave him a real strong talk about like not showing up, not being on time. And just like, if you want to be a boxer and you really want to do this, you know, you better get your act together. I said, I'm going to go home now. You know, I just can't take this anymore. You know, you're not showing up and so forth. And then he called me every day for like a month. 
And I told him, okay, I'll come back, but your first day off is the one I give you, not one you take yourself. You have to train every day. And uh, he actually learned how to train as a fighter, and it was really good for him. And uh, he did cry, and <laughs> I was I was a little bit hard on him, but uh, boxing's uh, you know a, a hard sport, and uh, if you're not prepared for a fight. Uh, you know, you may be killed. I mean, this is this, this is actual facts of all, all sports. A lot of actors seem to want to play boxers. You've helped train some of them to act like boxers. But are there any actors that you think would actually make a good boxer? Um, you've got some good guys that are really good actors also. You know, you, you have Mark Wahlberg, who's uh, a good boxer and also a great actor. And Mario Lopez uh, is a very good fighter too and they both come to my gym once in a while and train and I keep trying to put them two together I said this can be like the biggest movie fight in, in the world and because they both can fight I'm not exactly sure who would win or who's better because they're both very talented kids and I said you guys should do a charity bout or something because it'd be great to see like and who's the best out of the actors in, in the world? Wow, I might put my money on Mario Lopez. What do you think about that? Smart bet? Yeah, I think it's a smart bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, he trains at my gym almost every day, and uh, I, I see him quite a bit. And, uh, he's a good puncher, and he's a very talented kid. Well, my last question. When I watch Rocky, the thing that really freaks me out about his training is that he's running in, in converse. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. At one time in my life, I used to run in my boots and in the snow and, and so forth. And I'd say to my dad, hey, can I take the day off? It's snowing out there. It's he says, you're not going to melt. Get the F out there <laughs> and run. So I ran, I ran in boots and so forth. But then when I went to high school, I became a track star and I was good at cross country. And uh, I had a scholarship to go to UMass Amherst because I ran three miles in 14 minutes and one second, and I could run. But uh, instead of going to college, I turned pro in boxing and then chose that route. But um, once once I started running track, I ran in proper shoes. No converse. <laughs> well, Freddie, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I think that we're kind of hitting this territory, Amy, where these movies are so iconic, I can't even ask you, did The Simpsons do it? I'd rather say, how many times has The Simpsons made a Rocky joke? I mean, endless. Like, yeah. every time anybody has to do something, they basically get a Rocky montage. Uh, there's a million of them. Like, Lisa's like, I'm going to be a better speller. There's your Rocky montage. Everybody gets a Rocky montage. Everybody so gets a Rocky The one that I picked out is more a Rocky reference. This is from an episode called Lemon of Troy where uh, Bart is running around, he's trying to escape, and he realizes he needs to know Roman numerals in order to not walk into a room full of tigers. Caution. Exit through door seven only. All other rooms contain man-eating tigers. Okay, think, Bart. Where have you seen Roman numerals before? I know. Rocky V. That was the fifth one. So, Rocky five plus Rocky two equals Rocky seven. Adrian's Revenge! Little did he know that that is not too far from the truth, that there would be a Rocky (laughs) 7. Amy, are there negative reviews for this movie? Oh, totally. Um, Andrew Sarris from The Village Voice really called out the Capra thing. Mm -hmm. He was like, hey, listen, 
Capra's movie is projected more despair deep down than a movie like Rocky could envision. And most previous Ring movies have been much more cynical about the fight scene. So it was like, I see where you're trying to go with this Capra. You don't go hard enough. Kind of like what you were saying. Like, we think of Capra as being more charming, more right. cheerful. He was, he, Andrew Sarris calls out the real Capra and says, you're not the real Capra. He also said that uh, he thought Burgess Meredith was, was, quote, oddly cast in the kind of part the late James Gleason used to pick his teeth with. Uh, <laughs> so I'll read also a little bit longer piece from Vincent Canby, New York Times. He said that it's as if Stallone had studied the careers of Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola and then set out to copy the wrong things. He calls the screenplay of Rocky the purest Hollywood make-believe of the 1930s and says there's nothing wrong with that if the film had been executed with any verve. Wow. Then he goes real hard into just Stallone himself as an actor. He says Mr. Stallone's Rocky is less a performance than an impersonation. It's all superficial mannerisms and movements, reminding me of Rodney Dangerfield doing a nightclub monologue, which, yes, that's, that's there. I think so. Thanks. The speech patterns sound right, and what he says is occasionally lifelike, but it's such a studied routine and not a character. It's one of the film's ironies that a production that has put such emphasis on realism should seem so fraudulent. And the problem, I think, comes back to Mr. Stallone. Throughout the movie, we are asked to believe that his Rocky is compassionate, interesting, even heroic, even though the character we see is simply an unconvincing actor imitating a lug. Anyway, it's still on Best Picture, so. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> uh, you know, just to kind of um, rebut Andrew Saris, Burgess Meredith was not the original uh, Mickey. They wanted Lee Strausberg. To play Mickey, and he wanted too much money, so they hired Burgess Meredith instead. And Burgess Meredith is the only actor in this film that doesn't really play into the narrative of like how great Rocky is. Like I saw an interview with him; he's a pretty reclusive guy, didn't like to do a lot of press. But there was an interview he was doing for a film that he did called Magic, where he just kind of was like, "Yeah, that was okay movie. I liked it. It's good. I like Stallone. He's an interesting guy. Like it's not like you know this is after the movie is one best picture. He's actually working on Rocky too. He's just like, yeah." Whatever. You know, can you imagine being an Oscar voter this year and seeing Taxi Driver and seeing Rocky and being like, why do these movies both have the exact same line? Is he talking to me? He's talking to you. Is he talking to me? Then I'm talking to you. You know, I forgot all about that. And I thought that was a reference to Taxi Driver, but I didn't realize it came out the same year. So just that's a coincidence. Yeah, man. I think it's just one of those things. I think it's the cheese dick of 1976. Wow. Oh, by the way, we are running dangerously low on cheese dicks. I thought for sure we'd find one in <laughs> Sophie's Choice. Um, so Rocky is 57 on the AFI Top 100 list. What do you think about that? I don't hate it. It's below Jaws directly and right above the Gold Rush. Uh, a little bit above it is Taxi Driver, 52. And a little bit below it is Sullivan's Travels at 61. Ooh, Sullivan's Travels below it. Network mm. below it. Raiders of the Lost Ark below it. I mean, it does feel like we are rewarding the fact that this has been such a huge part of film culture, in part because Stallone hits the mat and he gets up again. Right. I mean, even The Expendables is him being like, what if Dolph Lundgren and I kept hanging out? And it makes you go, can you separate the film from the iconic stature that this character has? I think people will be very hard pressed to tell you what these movies are. Like if you sat down somebody without any prep and said, walk me through it, I think you could say, the first one, he fought Apollo Creed. The second one, he fought Apollo Creed. The third one, he fought Mr. T. The fourth one, he fought the Russian. You know, and that's people my age. People younger than me probably have no conception. But, you know, it's like, but that's what you remember, the fight, right? But this movie is really not about a fight. It's about a man. And then the movies as they continue just become about 
fights. Yeah, which seems to be a mistake because really there's only three ways a fight can go. You win, you lose, or it's kind of a draw. Yeah, and in these Rocky films, what they try to do is find ways to make him the underdog again. I really loved uh, Rocky Balboa. I think that that one we talked about a little bit, it feels like, ooh, that would have been the perfect sequel. If they only made two, like Blade Runner uh, 2049, like how cool would it have been from 1976, you have Rocky, and then whenever that was, you know, 2012 or 14, you have Rocky Balboa. That would have been mind-blowing. Like it would have been really fun to see. But I guess it has to belong on the list, right? Because it is so iconic. I think you're hard-pressed to find a movie that's so ingrained in our culture. I mean, I feel like if you were playing movie charades and you were trying to figure out or movie Pictionary, maybe. You were trying to be like, sketch out as many famous movies as you can. You would hit this in the top 20, right? Absolutely. And so it feels integral to our culture. And I feel like it works. I mean, it feels like it feels like a really, really great piece of pizza. Where I'm like, I will never kick that pizza out of bed. I, I agree with you. I think that's the way of looking at it. Um, all right, so Rocky, you get to stay in bed with the AFI Top 100. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. We've made it to the final, 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 final round. And I hesitate to say this out loud because I said that I'm terrified of curses a couple weeks ago. But we have decided not to roll the Zokihedron this week because Schindler's List is back in theaters. And you know what? We should just see it big. We should we should do what the movie theater tells us, even if the movie theater is now at war with like the Zokihedron, like it's some sort of like King Kong and Mothra thing and we're all going to die. But that said... Schindler's List, back in theaters. Let's all watch it together. Let's all watch it big. And related to that, here's what I wanted to ask you guys. Because you could actually be doing a double feature of Schindler's List and Roma. You know, Alfonso Cuaron's, like, beautiful black and white movie about growing up in the early 70s in Mexico City. It's gorgeous. And these two films together, being in theaters right now, they make me wonder. You know, we hear a lot about how audiences don't care about black and white movies. How black and white's old and stiff and dead and whatever. But I don't know what you think. And granted... You guys, our listeners, are probably like a little bit classier. But what I, what do you think is the deal with black and white having kind of an asterisk or a stigma? Or do you think maybe that stigma is disappearing? I'm very curious. So call in to our usual number. That is 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And give us not necessarily your hot take on black and white cinematographer, but your like coldly intelligent take of really... Can we be doing anything to move this medium forward, or should we be doing anything to move this medium forward? That is next week, Schindler's List. You guys are the greatest, and we'll talk to you then. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> oh, Jesus. 
I mean, Jazos, ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.